0: Suzanne mentioned it during worship. Did you read chapter 2 of Luke? It's really easy. You get to follow ahead. So next week, chapter 3. We are going to make, and if we ever do a break in that, I'll let you know. um, We're going to do something. Our plan is to do something a little bit different on on August 11th. Um, And so we won't probably be following there for that. But today, Luke chapter 2. Hope you did your homework. Um, Remember who this is? This is Dr. Luke. We're looking at Luke went and wrote this to a guy named Theophilus, the book, uh, his letter that we call the book of Luke, is a letter that he wrote to Theophilus investigating the truths about who Jesus is. And the second chapter of Luke gives us an overview of Jesus' life from his birth in Bethlehem. So every Easter or Christmas service you go to, you generally hear the story written or read from the gospel of Luke, the story about Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem, having a baby in the manger, no room in the inn. That's in chapter 2. So from his birth... Including um, his presentation when he's a young boy at the temple, according to Jewish customs, to his adolescent years, where he shows that he was a, a normal boy. That he disappeared from mom and dad for three days one time. They're in a caravan heading back to town, back home after being in a celebration in Jerusalem. They can't find him, and they find him in the temple, sitting with the leaders, um, answering, asking questions and answering questions. And so that's the period of time in Jesus' like life that Luke chapter two covers. And there's, so what we're trying to do in these, um, in these covering chapter by chapter is sometimes looking at kind of what's the big picture. Sometimes we're going to focus on just a narrow thing. But again, today, like last week, I want to see a big picture of something that is communicated very much on purpose um, through the Holy, by the Holy Spirit through Luke to us from chapter two. And the overarching thing that I see in chapter two that you're going to see in chapter two in a minute is that Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes through great effort to reveal both the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. He's talking about the nature of Jesus. This unfathomable thing that Jesus is both 100% human and 100% divine. And we say maybe 50-50, no. Somehow God reveals it, that Jesus the only person ever, 100% human, 100% divine, and Luke chapter 2 is trying to express that. So look at your Bible, and I'm just going to real quickly go through some things. Look at the ways, first of all, that Luke talks about Jesus being human. He's just going to talk about very normal things in Luke's and Jesus' life and birth that talk about Jesus being human. Look at verse 4. Talks about his family line. Joseph also went up to Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David. So he's talking about here's the family line of Jesus. Look at verse 7. Here's an ordinary birth. You know, we make all plays about this, but look at what it says. It's the ordinary birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Look at verse 21 like every other jewish boy and when eight days had passed before he was before his circumcision his name was called jesus so he was named that he was circumcised like every other young jewish boy look at verse 40 the child continued to grow and become strong Increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So, like every other child ever, he continues to grow, he continues to develop, he continues to grow in wisdom. He wasn't imparted to him the day he was born like some little some little robot. No, he grew and learned and grew in wisdom. Verses 41 to 50, if we if we read that whole thing, that's the story of Jesus disappearing. And and they couldn't find him, you know, they found him three days later in a temple. You know what he did? What was normal, like every other boy? He made his parents worry. Who's ever raised a child Then your kid made you worry? Right? Some of you have real children. The rest of you don't. You're, you have your parent, you your kids, you worry. Jesus was a regular kid. He made his parents worry. Look at verse 51. And he, went, he just shows he's subjected to his parents. He wasn't some strange creature. He was an actual kid. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them, to his parents. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Over and over, Luke points out the ordinary human aspects of Jesus's life. And remember this, he's writing this gospel as a way of telling the truth about who Jesus is. So what's he do? He talked to the eyewitnesses. He went to, it talks about Simeon and Anna in here who lived, who served in the temples and they had prophetic words saying, this is the one we've been waiting for. You know, he checked those eyewitnesses out and he says, this is what's the truth about him. And Luke is gathering all the facts. And as he gathers the facts, he wants to make it clear Jesus was a man. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't. And some people would have believed at different times in church history that he was almost like we use the word a hologram. He was just a spirit um, being projected into the world that they couldn't gather as fully man, fully God. But Luke is trying to say, no, listen, he is human. Jesus is human human now as Luke is going on telling the truth to Theophilus saying okay he's human he also wants to make it clear that he wasn't just any human that he was also in fact divine that Jesus is God he's already told us in chapter one that we looked at last week that Jesus is the son of God and so now he reinforces that point and the angels at his birth announce who he is look at verse 11 This is what angels allow us. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Look at that description of Jesus, a Savior. Now, Savior, um, at that time was often used for people, so you can't say, "Well, that's not necessarily saying that he was divine," because it's talking about people who could deliver them. But this next phrase, "Christ the Lord," that's divine. He is the Christ or the Messiah. Remember, the anointed one, that's what that means. The one anointed by God, according to the promise to come and deliver people, but he's not just the Christ, he's Christ the Lord. That refers to deity. Um, that is the thing that that baby was, is he is Lord, meaning that he is God, he has arrived, God has arrived in human form. He is Christ the Lord. Lord. And Luke goes on to reinforce his divinity. He tells of a couple of different things. Look it. He tells of his virgin birth. Notice in verse 5. He makes a point of saying Joseph and Mary were engaged. You ever wonder why? why would he, he was engaged. Why would he say that? They're traveling together. And he says they're engaged. He doesn't say they're married. They're traveling together. Why? He's meaning they had not yet consummated their marriage. That Mary is still the virgin Mary, and she's going to then give birth. Luke also points out how Simeon and Anna in the temple had both had prophetic statements about Jesus's um, divinity. And finally, Jesus refers to himself in the temple. He says, and when he's talking in the temple, he says, why were you wondering where I'd be? I was in my father's house, a reference to him being the son of God. So Luke in chapter two goes to great length in this one chapter to, to solidify that Jesus, that he's human, all these natural things, and he's divine, all these prophetic things about him, that he's the Lord, he's virgin-born, all these things. Now, this concept, God, man, human, divine, has always been a challenge throughout church history. Often the church has drifted towards one extreme or the other. And if you study church history, you'll see there was always these different things. Well, no, really, he was Human, and he just did God's work. No, 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 really, he was divine. No, he's just a prophet. There's been always this back and forth swing in church history. In fact, the primary reason that the early church developed creeds was because they wanted people to know what was essential and true about God. And we're going to do something today. We're going to look at two creeds that the church, that you're probably very familiar with, if you have any. Um, liturgical church background. I was raised a Lutheran, and every week we recited the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to do something today. We're going to read together first the Apostles' Creed, then the Nicene Creed, which you guys are familiar with. That also probably or you've heard of it, you've recited it, and we're going to see something that comes through really clear as we read these creeds. So let's start. I'll be on, a, on the on the uh, oh, um, the screens. Read along with me. We're going to start with the Apostles' Creed. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From the, there should be no, you're looking like you're reading different words than me. Okay, of living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. Okay, so maybe that, the version that we put up there is slightly different than the version I'm reading here, but that's the Apostles' Creed. Now, kind of file that in your brain for a second, a lot of you are familiar with it. Let's get the Nicene Creed. I'll read it off of there to make sure it's the exact same wording. Ready? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. "...through Him all things were made, for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father." He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, one thing the church has always done is recited those um, for a purpose, to know what we believe. Matter of fact, we've been toying with the idea of starting to recite the Apostles' Creed um, regularly in our services and trying to see if that's something the Lord would have us do. But as we read those two creeds, and, and you guys are, many of you are probably familiar with those creeds, um, we see there are a couple of main things that both of them, the reason I did the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, is the Apostles' Creed's a little a little briefer, and the Nicene Creed goes into more detail because they're trying to both say two basic things about God. Now, I'm not saying only two things, it's all kinds of things, but two basic generalities about God or overarching ideas about God. The first thing is this. God is Trinity. So they're broke down, both of them, they're broke down that you see the Father, you see Jesus, you see the Father, you see the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Spirit, we believe we believe in the God the Father, we believe in Jesus' the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. So they're trying to reveal the fact or state the fact God is Trinity. That's Orthodox Christianity. The next thing it's they're trying to do in the, in the Nicene Creed goes into greater detail to try to explain it, is they want to talk about the nature of Jesus. What's Jesus' nature? How do, we, how do we understand who Jesus is? And what they're both trying to say, they give details of his, that's why they do things like, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. They're trying to put him in a historical setting to say he was a real man, he was a man, but then all these divine things. They're trying to say, look, here's his nature. He is both God and man. He is human and divine. And this is really important. That's one of the main things of the creation. This is really important for a proper understanding of Christianity. Now, I would say that the church today, that us, say us, us, Portview Church, needs to be reminded about this again. Because it seems to me, and not just to me, but as you, you read people looking at the church in general, that the church today focuses, as it is pendulum swings back and forth, we are in a swing where we pay a lot more of attention to the divinity of Jesus than to the humanity of Jesus. We spend a lot more energy thinking about Jesus in the glorious state, Jesus doing these divine things, Jesus doing miracles. We look a lot more at Jesus' divinity than we do as this, at his humanity. And this imbalance has some real practical implications for how we experience Christianity. That we don't see it balanced the way it's supposed to be. Because what we believe affects how we live, right? How you live, the the thing that determines how you live is what you believe. So if you only see Jesus as primarily divine, and you only think about that, it will affect how how your Christianity is experienced. So because we're historically in a pendulum swing that's much more to the divinity of Christ... What I want to do today is I want to explain three reasons why understanding the humanity of Jesus is so important. See, I don't think we need to spend that looking at that and say, i got to convince you of the divinity of Christ. But three reasons why the humanity of Christ is so important. So get your pen and paper out because how you think affects how you live. So this will affect how you live out your Christian life. Some of these points are going to go, wow, that makes a difference in how I see my own life. So number one. Understanding Jesus' as humanity combats the error of seeing flesh or matter as evil and spirit as good. Seeing a dichotomy. Flesh is bad, spirit is good. And you may say, well, I don't really think that way. Um, here's the deal. We do. In our Western Christianity, we really have developed a thinking that flesh is evil and spirit is good. It stems from our, our Greek roots, which means our Western roots, from the philosophers that developed that. And there was this idea that flesh is bad, spirit is good, and therefore that's kind of woven into the thinking of, of our culture, of our, of our Western culture. And I'll give you a, a little test to prove it to you, prove it for ourselves. Um, do we generally see sexual passion As good or evil. Generally, we see it as evil, and we call it lust. That's generally what we see. Talk about people fighting against the lust. You know? And so Augustine famously said in his confessions this. O Master, this is prayer. O Master, make me chaste and celibate, but not yet. Here's what he saw. He saw his sexual desires as bad, and he wanted them gone, but he didn't want them gone too soon because he liked them. You know, in this case, his view came from this idea that flesh, in this case sexuality, um, flesh was bad, and that it was negative to his spiritual life and development, so he felt like he had to crush the flesh. Well, much of our thinking comes from Augustine. He was one of the main thinkers that helped Christianity develop in the Western mindset. And this idea that I had to crush the flesh, Lord, you know, make me chaste and celibate. I don't want to fight with this stuff, but don't do it too soon because I really like it. That's the predominant Western view. Flesh is evil, spirit is good. We see them as separate. Now, this is especially true in Pentecostal charismatic, spirit-filled streams of Christianity. Our emphasis on the spirit-filled life often morphs into a belief that flesh or our humanness, or our desires, or our passions, and even our bodies. So we say, my body doesn't matter. All that matters is my soul, is my spiritual life. So we can ignore our bodies. We can overeat or whatever else, not exercise, because our bodies don't matter. All that matters is our spiritual development. That's why we often think of spiritual growth or spiritual formation as something internal about just our soul, That's how we see it. Oh, I need to grow spiritually. To us, that means it's something internal. It's a soulish thing. Rather than something that's holistic, that affects all of us, body, spirit, and soul. So we try to live this life in the spirit by suppressing our humanity, by suppressing our desires and our passions and denying our flesh, right? Isn't that a typical Western view? Yes, But Jesus, being fully human, says something different to us. Jesus was fully human. He experienced desires and passions and therefore shows that desires and passions are good. Jesus was a real human being. He had all the passions and desires of every human man. I think there's a reason God brought him as a man, not as a woman. Because we think of certain passions and we think of men. He had all of those same passions. And since there is no evil or sin in Jesus, it shows that those passions, those desires are good because everything in Jesus and about Jesus is good. Jesus shows us that being fully human is living in the fullness of our passions and desires within the context of holiness. It's passions focused in the right direction. Jesus doesn't call us to suppress our desires. He calls us to channel our desires in godly ways. So with the example we're using, so sexuality is channeled through marriage and becomes a very good thing. It's not denying passion. It's channeling passion in a godly way according to how God shows us what's best primarily through his word. And this is a very important result of understanding Jesus' humanity. It sets you free to live fully and freely as a human. It sets you free to live into your passions, to enjoy what you enjoy within the boundaries of holiness according to the way God put parameters in place to make sure these passions are, are focused and used in the right way. It gives us freedom to embrace our humanity where much of Western Christianity has tried to force us to suppress Humanists and just live in this ethereal thing called being spiritual. Being spiritual is living out God's humanity in my flesh. That's being spiritual. Does that make sense? That's the first reason that seizing Jesus' humanity is important. Let's look at another one. Grasping Jesus' humanity. And I think this one, the other one's more philosophical. This one is intensely practical. It's this. Understanding Jesus' humanity brings significance to our ordinary lives. Think about something. God was a carpenter for 30 years. God, Jesus, we said it earlier, fully man, fully God. God was a carpenter for 30 years. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, While he was fully God and fully man, he was a carpenter. Jesus being human brings significance to our ordinary lives. Was Jesus less God while he was a carpenter? No, he was not less God. He was fully God and fully man. He was perfectly living out being God in the reality of human flesh. Imagine this. Imagine this in a sin-fallen world. We read it earlier. Luke says he was growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with men while he was a carpenter in the midst of a sin-corrupted world. This brings significance to whatever you are called to do in the kingdom of God. You don't need to have Rev in front of your name to be significant in God's kingdom. You just need to be who God created you to be and do what God created you to do. Now, a little test for you. Mitch, if you know this, don't answer until everyone... Mitch knows every name in the Bible. And I'm going to try to... Well, I'll try to say the name. I'll I'll mispronounce it anyways, but... Do you know the first person in the Bible who is described as being filled with the Spirit of God? We know the first person in the Bible being described as being filled with the Spirit of God. Do you know Mitch? Come on, are you lying to me? It's Bezaliel. Am I saying that right? Bezaliel. You say, who in the world is that? First person in the Bible described being filled with the Spirit of God. you know who he was? He was the man gifted by God with talents to build the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus chapter 31, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezaliel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, and knowledge in every kind of craft, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for settings, and in carving wood in every kind of craft. Friends, get this point. This will change how you think, change how you act and how you live and how you appreciate the world you live in it was through bazilio's vocation that he demonstrated the presence of god it was through his vocation that he demonstrates he demonstrated the presence of god to the world through what many in the world would call ordinary through his job i think it is very significant That filled with the Spirit of God is used to describe, for the first time ever in Scripture, a blue-collar worker like Jesus was, not a priest or a prophet. I think it's very significant. God is saying something. He's saying being human is a good thing. He calls it very good in Genesis. So this, being you is a good thing. Being a carpenter, or an artist, or a parent or a salesperson, or a teacher, or an engineer, or a healthcare professional, that, it, that, that that is wonderful. And get this, friends, because it's how God wants to incarnate himself in the world through you. you understand what I mean there? The incarnation is when God himself came in human flesh into the world. The way God incarnates himself now, he's still incarnating himself. He's incarnating himself through us. The Bible says that Jesus, when we look at the body of Christ, who is Jesus? The head, who are we? He talks about it. you're the hands, you're the mouth, you're the feet, you're all these different things. He's saying this: when we, when we live out who God made us to be, we are incarnating Jesus in the world. We are revealing His reality, to the world around us. He wants to live out his life through you in the ordinary things of life. He wants to to see for us to see um, to see everything in our lives that we do as sacred. In essence, we can say this: everything we do, your job can be sacramental. You think of sacraments of the church. Your job can be sacramental—a way of of bringing honor to God because Jesus. Lived in the ordinary way, lived godness. He's incarnating himself. He's incarnating himself through you. Paul in Colossians 3 says it like this And whatever you do, and you think whatever you do, work at the blood center, run a company, you know, be teachers, you know, everything you do. In whatever you do, what God called you to do, run landscaping companies. In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's saying this, that's how he is incarnated in the world. Jesus being human shows that everything we do can be sacred. It can be his incarnation done in the name of the Lord. So raising our kids and doing our jobs and playing our sports and going Fishing, everything can be sacred when we are incarnating Jesus. When I take some, you know what my boat is named? It's got a sticker on it. It's called the friendship. Because I can take people out of my boat with me and guess what? They can't escape. When they're in Lake Winnebago, they can't get away. And somehow Jesus is going to come up. That's incarnating. That's incarnating Jesus in the world as being who you're supposed to be. It can happen when it's supposed to be when you're, when you're changing diapers and when you're going to work and when you're, when you're doing it, you're, you're saying, Jesus, be seen through me. How will that change how you work? You're not going, oh, this stinking job that I hate. Got to do it. Just got to make it till Sunday to go to church. No. You're incarnating Jesus as you raise your grandkids, you're incarnating Jesus when you do the ordinary things of life. That makes sense? That makes your life more, more, more worth, worth getting out of bed in the morning for, doesn't it? One more thing. One more thing that we look at the importance of Jesus' humanity, what it says to us. It gives us the pattern and the power to live overcoming lives. Jesus lived as a man in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. Remember, Jesus is the God is Trinity. That's what the creeds are trying to say. God is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Living in this relationship. Some guy named Baxter Kruger calls it the great dance. This loving, perfect, holistic, union God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God has always lived in that. God has always been Trinity. Always in, He doesn't need anything. He's fully functioning, fully happy, fully joyous, fully sufficient in Trinity. Jesus, still being Trinity, comes in human form, limits himself in some capacities. That's what Philippians 2 is talking about. But he lived as a man, still as part of the Trinity, now in a limited form, with the Trinity, but living as a human. and He lived within the sin-corrupted, fallen world as a man, as a human, totally vulnerable to sin and temptation. In fact, I would say this. I believe he was tempted more than any other person ever has been, that he was targeted by the devil more than any other person has been, yet he never caved He never compromised. He never faltered in his relationship with the Father and the Spirit because they are Trinity. So therefore, he is our example. See how we live. Our example of the perfect human. The ultimate overcomer. The ultimate expression of what humanity is supposed to look like living out its humanness in the midst of a sin-corrupted world. But he's more than just an example. He is also our ability to overcome. He's not just the example. He's also our ability to overcome. Because we live in Christ. So the Bible says we live in Christ. We are not on our own. The Bible says it over and over and over. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you over and over and over. This idea that God dwells in the children of God. Friends, because Jesus is human and because Jesus lives as a perfect human and because Jesus lives in me by his spirit, then you and I can live an overcoming life like he lives by the power of his presence in our lives, the power of his spirit. So the question you need to ask yourself today as we wrap up is what do you need to overcome today? What do you need to overcome today? It seems to me to be that the Spirit of God is trying to say that to us today. You know, the worship songs went that way. A prophetic word went that way. What do you need to get rid of? What do you need to put behind you? The question is, what do you need to overcome today? Jesus shows it's possible but he did not just show it's possible, it's like this. It's not like this, I should say. It's not like this. Me and, I'll show up my old, Michael Jordan, okay? Um, who's more, you're going to laugh at me. Giannis, is that his name? Akunamatata? Akuna, Akuna, Akuna Giannis Akunamatata. Whatever his name is, the Greek freak. We're standing on a basketball court. We each given a ball. There's the hoop. Yanis says, Mark, let me, show you how to make, let me show you how to dunk a basketball. He runs up, dumps the basketball. I go, oh, you ever seen me jump? I got about a three-inch vertical leap. <laughs> I, I'd have a hard time touching the net. So I jump. Now I'm, <laughs> I'm 55 and fat. I'm not sure I can touch the net. <laughs> I jump up. I don't do it. But Giannis showed me how to do it. If that's all you think that Christianity is, that Jesus being human is, he gave me an example, that doesn't work. Jesus showed me how to do it, but Giannis showed me how to stuff a basketball. I can't do it just because he showed me. But imagine this, and it's even more than this. Imagine this. Giannis, I go to stuff the basketball, and Giannis grabs me, and he picks me up. (laughs) I've done done a Cali little basketball hoops. Cali, wants to put it in. You pick Callie up and she takes the basketball and she throws it in. She just dunked the basketball. Giannis picks me up, lifts me up 10 feet. And I dunk the basketball and I go, dunking the basketball is easy. Nothing to it. He showed me how to do it, but he empowered me to do it. Now imagine this, it's not Giannis. It's God himself inside of you. Fully available. That's what scripture said is the reality of our Christian life. He's... because Jesus lived as a fully man, he showed how as a man, he could live a spirit-empowered life. He's doing it to say, this is what can be. But then he says, okay, but I'm not just gonna show you, i have also the power, I live in you by my spirit to empower you to say, to say yes to what's right and no to what's wrong. That's how you channel the passions in the right way. So you have these passions that if they're used wrong way, become sin. If they're used right way, they become wonderful and and expressing the goodness of God. How do I do it? I do it by the power of God within me. That I surrender to Him. That I invite Him in. And I trust in His power to help me. I'm part of it. I've got to say. I got to say no. I've got to say yes. I've got to welcome Him in. But I understand He is the power. To overcome. So the question is, what do you need to overcome today? We can come to Jesus. We can call on him to empower us to victory. That's what Christianity is. He's saying, come unto me, all who are we- have weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says his burden upon us is light, and it's easy. Because he's the one, it's this picture of a yoke. I'm going to talk that way, not the yoke of an egg. The yoke of an oxen, a thing that binds two oxen together. And imagine this is what he's saying. This is what this is all, it's all the same themes over and over. He says, come to me, and the yoke will go on me, and the yoke will go on Jesus, and he'll carry the weight. He'll make it easy. That's what this is, that's, what, that's understanding the humanity of Jesus helps us understand that. He gives us the model, but he also he lived in an empowered state, and we can see that then I can live in an empowered state because he said he will come within us. So what do we need to overcome today? We come to Jesus, and we call on Him to empower us to to victory. He shows us what humanity can be. Free, overcoming, passionate, holy. And that's what He wants for each and every one of us. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to just give you an opportunity if you want to come to the Lord today and say, you know what, Lord, there's some things my passions gone awry, and I want to surrender it to You, and I want to have, I want to be overcome. I want You to be, be an overcomer in me, Lord. Or I just need You to help me see that the ordinary is extraordinary because You're incarnating Yourself through me. However, the Lord may want to do a ministry in your life today. I'm going to give you a chance to just come and say, spend some time with the Lord. Spend some time, come and and, and open your heart up. I'll pray with you, but you know what? Mainly, you're just coming to Jesus. But beyond that, before the worship team prays, maybe you're here today, and you have never yet said yes to Jesus. You've never said yes to Jesus. I'm not saying you don't go to church. I'm not saying you're not a church member. I'm not saying you didn't get baptized. I'm not saying you didn't go to communion. I was a church member. I was baptized. I had been through a confirmation. All that. I didn't know Jesus. I'm saying you've never said yes to Jesus where you've done this. You made a transaction where you come into the world and here's me. I am Lord of my life. I'm Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. But then I recognize that that there's a God in this world. And you know what? I love to live up here and God's down here. Coming to Jesus is saying this, I recognize your God and I put you up here. It means I put myself down here. That's, it's, it's not in a negative way. It's submitting to what's right. The God of the universe is saying, I want to protect you. I want you to come under. Re- I want to forgive you. I want to make you brand new. You've maybe never said, I need to switch positions. I need to say that Jesus is Lord of my life. I need to come to him and ask him to forgive my sins and him to become the Lord or or the overseer of my life and I'm going to live in step with him. You've never done that before. You can do that right now. I'd invite everybody, would you just close your eyes with me this morning as we close? Let's just close our eyes and think about that. Have you honestly said yes to Jesus? And if you have not, is something going on inside of you right now that's saying, I'm supposed to? If not, please do not respond. You're not ready. But if you are here today, and something's going on inside of you that's saying, I know I don't understand all of it, but I do Understand that I need to come and make my life right with Jesus. I need my sins forgiven. I want to live a new life. Brand, I want to put the old life behind me. The Bible talks about it's called repenting, which means uh, you have an epiphany. Basically, repentance is an epiphany that you know what? I've been living wrong. I want to live right. I want to change direction. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I'm ready to say yes to that. Not emotionally driven. I'm just ready to say yes to Jesus and I want to do my best then from this day forward to follow him. I'm not sure what that looks like but I'm going to follow him. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed I'm going to have you do something between you and me and God. No one else because no one else is looking around. I want to start on my right, your left and I'm going to look at the congregation and if that's you I want you to raise your head up I want you to look me right square in the eye until I see you I'm going to nod at you when I see you and say okay. So I'm going to start over here On my right, you're left, and I'm going to go across to the center of the congregation. Look me right in the center, okay. Anybody else? Okay. Here's what I want to do to start, before we open up our altar time. Number of people saying yes. We're going to pray a prayer. There's nothing magical about the words at all. All it is is we're is you're just going to say, you're going to be saying yes to Jesus. And I'm going to invite the whole congregation to pray with us. We're all going to say this thing. And what you're doing right now is you're just saying, you're saying yes to Jesus. You're saying, I want you in my life. I want to trade positions where you're Lord and I'm not. And I want to from this day follow you. So pray with me this way. Say, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. I know I need you. And so today, so today I, welcome you into my life. I welcome you into my life. I'm not even sure what that means. Not even sure what that means. But I, I, can I can see that I can, I can trust you. So today, I give my life to you. I, to you. I ask you, I ask you. To, make to make me brand new from the inside out. Forgive me of my sin, wash me clean, make me brand new. So this day, I give my life to the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you did that today, I'm going to encourage you to do at least one thing. Come talk to me if you want to do that, but at least one thing. And this is for you. It's not for anybody else. But I think it's important for you. Before the sun goes down tonight, tell somebody that you know that is a Christian that you said yes to Jesus. Because what it's going to do, is it's going to solidify it in your life. And it's going to give permission to another person not to be overbearing, but to say, how can I help you? Okay? And so I, I challenge you tonight, before, before tonight's over, tell somebody I've asked Jesus in my life. I'm gonna give you a chance to come forward and pray in a minute. All everybody. But I just want to make a comment about, if I can find a text, about what just what happens when you come to Christ. And it's in an odd place to bring it out. I think it's it's just. Four words that struck me in my in my devotions the other day. I read it, I read through a part a portion of Psalms every day, and I read a portion of New Testament every day. And in Psalm eight, the first line, and I've read it a hundred times probably, but I never thought of it like this before. I thought I could write, I'm going to preach a sermon about it probably. It says this. I'll read the first, but I'll make a comment. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Look what it says. O Lord, you're saying this. Oh, Lord, there's a Lord of the, of the world. Oh, Lord. What's it say next? Our Lord. A lot of people live in this world with, oh, Lord, there's a God in heaven. What we did today is you said, I want the God of heaven to be my Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Oh, Lord, my Lord. He wants to be your Lord. David, all those, all those thousands of years ago wrote that. Oh, Lord, my Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord. He can be, he's our Lord. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to pray a prayer of closing. And when, when I'm done, if you would like to come and spend some time praying, maybe there's something the sermon spoke to you about. Maybe you would like me to pray with you, um, whatever it might be come and spend some time in prayer. When you feel dismissed by the Holy Spirit, then quietly make your way out of the sanctuary. The rest of our time together is just going to be a time for spending time with the Lord. So Father, thank you for the work that, that you are doing. When Maybe work's the wrong word, Lord. The loving care that you are showing to us in our church family. Thank you that you have ministered to us. As we have worshipped you, you have ministered to us today. And that people have said yes to you. And a lot of us have said, you know what, I understand better humanity. It's going to affect how I live. And now Lord, we just say, any way that you want to work in our hearts and our lives, that's what we want. We're all in with you. So friends, our Our altar is open. If you want to come and pray, God bless you. As the worship team begins to sing, come and pray.